Hello, everybody. My name is Steve Smelsky. I'm one of the co-hosts of Hope Through Grief, and I'm here with my co-host and good friend, Marshall Adler. And today's episode is going to cover the topic of suicide. This is um, actually, this is a fairly big topic to cover. And Marshall and I have talked several times about how best to to cover this particular topic. And we've decided that we're going to break it into several different episodes. So today we're going to touch on some of the uh, some of the facts, just so we all have the correct baseline to start from. And then we're also going to cover a few things from the uh, suicide survivor standpoint. I think the first thing we probably need to do is mention the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So if you're contemplating or have had thoughts about it, please reach out. That number is 1-800-273-8255. Now, on the topic, Marshall is much more knowledgeable about this whole subject and how to deal with it from the grief side. So today, we decided that I would go ahead and cover some of the facts up front, and then I'm going to pose some of the questions to him, and we'll just cover some of the items that we've been... um, trying to decide what would go into the first episode. So I do have to say, Marshall, when I first looked these up today, I found them on dosomething.org and they listed the uh, some suicide facts. I think we've got 11 to 13 of them as of the year 2017. And I did not know suicide was the 10th leading cause of death. That one really surprised me. And I know you've researched this much further than I have. Yes, it's... Interesting because the statistics you're listing there of 2017 are generally the most recent up-to-date statistics that are available because it does take a while for the medical researchers to quantify the statistics to make sure they're accurate. But every indication that has been done since 2017 actually shows that the suicide epidemic has gotten worse and these statistics are actually increasing in almost every demographic category that these medical researchers use. So that is not good news. I was uh, I was thinking you were probably going to say that they, they didn't have anything for 2018 yet. So as I was going through the list, let's just go right down through the list and we'll cover these. And then we've got a basis to start from as we move into our discussion the first one that hits you is it's more than 47,000 U.S. citizens died in 2017 to death by suicide. That's a staggering number, especially in the year of COVID when we're dealing with, with death numbers on a daily basis and rolling number. That's a big number. The next one hit me just as hard. There were twice as many suicides as homicides in the U.S. in the year 2017. Sometimes that's hard to fathom. It's also the second leading cause of death for 10 to 34-year-olds in the U.S. Steve, that's one that I think the audience should really concentrate on the significance of that because since Matt passed away from suicide, I've obviously been forever affected by his death by suicide, but I've also 
become my own personal research factory to try to get some understanding of why suicide is happening in society in general and to my son in particular. And again, I'm always been a voracious reader of news and I read the obituaries every single day and I can tell you that if you actually do read the obituaries, you'll see these obituaries of young people that have passed away and many times I would be able to read the obituary and almost come to a conclusion that this could have been a suicide. And I will tell you that I've had um, the opportunity to have that confirmed because I've been very involved with the suicide survivor community after Matt's passing. And I've actually had the opportunity to meet family members who lost their loved one. And when they tell me their story, tell me their loved one's name, I know that I read about it in the obituary. And so... So do do most of them not give a cause of death? A lot of the obituaries are very careful how they talk about their loved one's passing. I would say that the vast majority do not mention suicide, but I have seen a increased number of obituaries that will list um, suicide prevention hotline at the end of the obituary as a place where charitable contributions are being requested by the family to be sent to in honor of their lost loved one, which obviously would be a reason to suspect that this was, in fact, a suicide. I'm sure the family knows people are going to assume that. So I think those family members are very brave, and I think those members of those families should be commended for having that in writing. I will tell you that the vast majority of people who have lost loved ones to suicide that I personally talked to decided not to list that in the obituary, which obviously is a very personal decision for them to make. And I can just speak personally that in Matt's obituary, which I wrote, we did not list his cause of death by suicide, but we have been very transparent, very vocal about the fact that he died by suicide. And we wanted to make sure at his funeral, we talked to our rabbi and wanted to use the funeral as a platform to 
address the issue of death by suicide, and we've done it ever since Matt's passing. So again, everybody's got their own decision to make on that. And for us personally, we didn't put that in the obituary, but everything we've done since then has been directed towards addressing the issue of death by suicide because we want to try to prevent it as much as we can and also help survivors who've lost loved ones at suicide because I think Matt would want us to do that. I've always been amazed that you've been very forthright and upfront with that. And uh, I do commend you and Debbie for taking that approach. Um, The next one on our list is actually a very sobering statistic. So it says on average, one person dies every 11 minutes by suicide, which means on average, there could be four people that commit suicide while we're recording the podcast today. That's, That's a very sobering number. Also, the next one on the list is 50% of the people in the U.S., they know someone who has died by suicide. So it's not like it's a small population that's affected by this. At least half of the population knows somebody who has committed suicide. 10.5% of adults in the U.S., ages 18 to 25, had serious suicide thoughts in the past year. That's a rather large number. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, and questioning youth are five times more likely to attempt suicide. Women are three times more likely to attempt suicide, but men are 3.5 times more likely to have a fatal outcome from suicide. 79% of global suicides occur in low- and middle-income countries. Firearms accounted for almost 24,000 suicides, or about half of the total number. And in a national study, 40% of transgender adults attempted suicide, with 92% of them having attempted suicide before the age of 25. These are just the, the facts that we came up with off the do something.org site. And I do want to mention they referred to some different uh, associations where they arrived at these numbers. They were from the statistics from American Association of Suicidology, National Institute of Mental Health from the CDC, the Trevor Report, WHO, and the William Fiegelman Journal of Affective Disorders. So they gathered the data for all of those facts that we've come up with about suicide. So we kind of want to start off with a baseline. So we're all thinking and talking about the same thing. And from there, Marshall, the one thing I've always wondered, and I'm not sure I ever heard a good answer on, is everybody at risk from suicide or thoughts of suicide? Do do everybody contemplate it at least once or twice in their lifetime? Can it touch anybody? Steve, That's a very good question because I'll just say personally, I have never had any thoughts of suicide, not one time my entire life. And because of that, it was always very difficult for me to understand why anybody would ever contemplate that. I always would tell 
my kids that if anybody was ever contemplating suicide, I would just wonder why they just didn't go off and live in a cave and think about their life or do what they wanted to do and see if they wanted to live in a cave. If they like living in a cave, God bless them. Let, let them live in a cave versus ending their life because so much of life is unexpected. And you want to see how things turn out. And I think my philosophy of that sort of goes back to um, a book I read in high school, which was Walden Pond by Henry David Thoreau. And he went to live by himself on Walden Pond, which was a very rural, rustic area, and he wrote about it. And it obviously helped with his mental health. And I always just wondered why everybody, whoever considered suicide, didn't do that. After Matt's passing by suicide, I knew that I would be obsessed with trying to figure out why the suicide happened. And I was going to be researching as many different sources from as many different authoritative journals, articles, discussions from scholars that I could possibly have to try to get some insight into it, but also try to talk to as many suicide survivors who lost loved ones to discuss what their experience was with the loss of a loved one by suicide. And the one thing that I would say is the one constant with suicide is there are no constants. By that I mean people make assumptions about suicide that, oh, they must have been so depressed. There's research that shows that people that are severely depressed are actually less likely to attempt suicide than if they're not depressed because they don't have the energy that they would otherwise need to do something like this. So that has, in the academic journals, been attacked as not 100% correct. Then somebody was saying, oh, he must have had so much difficulties in their lives at that time. Well, I will tell you, during the period before Matt's suicide, and Matt's suicide anniversary is next week, it'll be two years coming up next week, the month before Matt passed away, there was a three-day period where Kate Spade, who was an incredibly well-loved 
fashion designer, apparently an incredibly loving, funny, nice, caring person, died by suicide. Within the same three-day period, Anthony Bourdain, who was one of the top chefs in New York City and became a TV star on CNN when he did a series where he traveled around the world, ate exotic food, and talked about his incredible experiences on CNN, which to me sounds like the greatest job anybody could ever have. And he actually was on a shoot for CNN in France, staying at this beautiful hotel where he just finished a shoot with one of his best friends, another chef, had dinner, seemed fine, and then went to his hotel room and died by suicide. And after Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain died by suicide, Matt actually came home because my mother was dying and she was in hospice. And I remember talking to Matt about Kate Spade, but really more more specifically Anthony Bourdain because he liked watching Anthony Bourdain on TV. And he just said he didn't understand it at all, how somebody would do that, especially when everything on the outside looks like it's going so well. So the generalization that people make, oh, well, they must have had difficulties in their lives. From the outside looking in, it sure looked like Kate Spade had a wonderful life, and it looked like Anthony Bourdain had a wonderful life. And again, we can just go on further down the line. Robin Williams, one of the great comedians of our generation, well-loved, wonderful family man, he died by suicide. And recently there is a story concerning a frontline medical doctor in New York City called Dr. Lorna Breen, who was fighting COVID-19 as a hero in New York City and was having difficulty dealing with those stressors of being a frontline medical provider fighting this horrific pandemic. And she went home to her family in Charlottesville, Virginia, and she unfortunately died by suicide. So a lot of the generalizations that exist don't really hold up when you are talking to people who've lost loved ones to suicide. And the one analogy that I've used since Matt's passing that I think really resonates and sort of explains what we're talking about when you're talking to suicide survivors is 
what I describe as the iceberg analogy. Everybody knows that the Titanic was hit by an iceberg that resulted in horrific loss of life. If you saw the movie, it was very dramatic the way the lookout saw the tip of the iceberg and tried to get the ship to turn quickly to avoid it. And an iceberg is sort of like a ice cube in a glass that we've all seen. The ice cube in the glass, just like the iceberg, only 10% above the waterline, which means that 90% is above the is below the waterline. You can only see the 10% above the waterline. You cannot see the 90% below the waterline. The Titanic was not sunk by the 10% above the waterline. It was sunk by the 90% of the iceberg they couldn't see below the waterline. And that is what I think suicide is all about. As human beings on this planet, we only see the 10% above the waterline that people want us to see. The 90% below the waterline is the part that we can't see because for whatever reason, those people don't want us to see it. Again, I talked to Matt on a daily basis, was constantly texting him. He lived 3,000 miles away, but we'd FaceTime him. And my last conversation with Matt was, like all my conversations with Matt, hilarious, funny, everything's going great. My last text with him was, everything's wonderful. He was going to have a girl come over and talk to me tomorrow. That was the last text I got from him. Those last conversations were no different than thousands of conversations I had with him or thousands of text messages I had from him, except those were the last ones. So I had nothing to look at but the 10% of the iceberg above the waterline and knew nothing about the 90% below the waterline. And that is why, to answer your question, suicide doesn't discriminate And it can and it has touched so many different people at different times where their loved ones never saw it coming. That is such a great analogy. I I can see why you use that. It kind of answers all the stuff that we want to know and we don't know because you can't see it. You had no idea it was there. Let me ask you. Um, so I, I know those who lost loved ones are considered suicide survivors. They're the ones who are left here on this earth. Um, that's the title we give to them. Is there an all-consuming need to understand why and if so, how do you, how do you how do you deal with that? 
again, as we previously discussed about grief, everybody has their own journey of grief. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's just personal. Debbie's journey of grief as a mother is different than my journey of grief as a father. And I will tell you that Matt knew me like a book. And I know that he knew that I would spend the rest of my life trying to figure this out. And I've said this many times that to me, this is like somebody took a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and threw it on my dining room table and said, okay, you've got the rest of your life to try to figure out how to put these pieces together. It's been two years now since Matt's passing, and I would give a rough rough estimate that of that thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle, I've been able to put maybe a hundred of those pieces together, which means that there's 900 other pieces that I can't figure out how they fit. And what... I knew I had to do is to try to see what I could get from Matt to help me on this journey. And I was able to get information from Matt on his cell phone, on his computer that I think were breadcrumbs that he left to help me in particular, but as I think his family and friends in general, along this journey. And I think that it's something that I'm going to be spending the rest of my life trying to figure out. But Other people wouldn't want to do that. I can tell you that Debbie, as a mother, does not have the desire or inclination to do the investigation that I have done, am doing, and will continue to do the rest of my life. She just doesn't want to do that. I totally understand that and respect that. It's just a different way of dealing with suicide, just as it's a different way of dealing with grief. Again, it's not right. It's not wrong. It's just the individual journey that each suicide survivor has to go on. I completely get that. Um I know with Jordan dying from the amoeba nigleria fowleri, I'll read anything about it, anything that I didn't know about it. Shelly can take it or leave it. She's like, well, sum it up. What are the facts? And she can live with that. Me, I've got to dig into it. So I completely get that that take on it. So 
from what you've said so far, suicide, first of all, doesn't discriminate. It can hit anybody. It doesn't have to be those downtrodden. It could be what we would consider superstars. Robin Williams is one of the funniest guys I ever, ever watched. And yet few even had any inkling that it was coming. So any suicide attempt should be treated seriously and not lightly, correct? Absolutely. Because, again, it is so insidious because it's not the outside looking in that is the key factor. It's the inside looking out. Again, I've done some more research, as I know you have also, since Matt's passing, and looking at some of these people that have died by suicide since Matt passed, my jaw dropped. You'd think that I would be not surprised because I've experienced it firsthand, but I am. There was a case that really affected me. Like Alan Kruger served as the chairman of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisor Advisors. He was not only an economic professor at Princeton University, he was a key player in developing the economic plan that prevented the Great Recession of 2008 from turning into a worldwide depression. And I read an article about his suicide that, if I remember correctly, was written by somebody that actually interviewed him on TV for his economic expertise. And they said he was the kindest, gentlest, nicest, warmest person that you could ever imagine. And the person ended by basically stating this was the least likely person I would ever imagine they would die by suicide. But I will tell you, I've heard that again and again and again and again from suicide survivors. We were actually in New York City shortly after Anthony Bourdain died. And I was able to go to a restaurant where Anthony Bourdain knew the owner. And I asked the owner about his relationship with Anthony Bourdain. And he told me the same thing that this person talked about, Alan Kruger. Anthony Bourdain was this incredibly brilliant, funny, kind, generous, wonderful person who, on the outside looking in, was the least likely person to ever die by suicide. But again, pick your analogy. It's not the outside looking in. It's the inside looking out. It's not the 10% above the waterline. It's the 90% below the waterline that counts. That's why suicide is so insidious. And that is why suicide survivors 
like me who do want to take this journey to try to get as much information as possible will be dealing with this for the rest of our lives because it's so darn complicated. Thank you for that that story about that trip to New York City and talking to somebody that actually knew Anthony Bourdain. Just for our listeners, I think we should go ahead and mention the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline one more time. If you're having any issues or anyone that you know are, make sure they call 1-800-273-8255 for help. Because as we've said, every attempt should be not treated lightly and um, we just want to make sure that everybody has that number. So Marshall, obviously as a suicide survivor, you and Debbie have met other people. I read one of the facts off of the um, the website that we had pulled the statistics, do something.org. And it, it actually caught me off guard because they estimate that each suicide leaves behind six or more suicide survivors. And when you think about it, that's it's actually probably quite more than six per. But even at six suicide survivors left behind, that's 2.5 million people every year that are affected by this. And it, it very well could go much higher because we're not even counting friends. We're, it's, that's probably just from a family perspective. Yes, the ripple effects of suicide, it's much greater than throwing a pebble into a pond and seeing the ripples go out. It's like throwing a Sherman tank into a lake because it's just not going to be little calm ripples. It's going to be huge waves of grief affecting so many people. I will tell you that the two years since Matt's passed, I am to this day still amazed how many people have been affected by Matt's passing because they were affected by his life. The morning of Matt's funeral, I was contacted by some of his friends in California that told me that they were going to have a memorial service for Matt in the San Diego area. And the one problem that they had was trying to get a venue big enough because they had so many people that wanted to give a eulogy about their relationship with Matt. And we got a videotape of the ceremony and there was people there that I never personally met and never heard Matt talk about who were so touched by Matt's life that it amazed me. And 
I love when somebody will call me up or contact me or text me and tell me a mad story that I never knew about. And it makes you realize, again, it's not the pebble in the pond with the little circles coming out of ripples, how it affects people left behind. It is a humongous, innumerable number of waves that go farther than you could ever imagine. I, I can picture that in my mind, seeing it going in and they just crisscross and they they intersect and it, it's, it affects so many. Any type of loss can be overwhelming, especially when it's quick and unexpected. Now, you lost your mother just a couple days, either before or right after Matt's passing. How is the, the shock and the grief as a suicide survivor different than another loss? Is it more intense? Is there other things that come with it that aren't always with some of the other losses? Yeah, Steve, that's an interesting point. And you and I just talked to Brian in a prior episode, and Brian was so brave to tell us about the passing of his daughter from colon cancer that although she was incredibly heroic in this fight, it eventually resulted in her passing. And after my sister, who obviously was very close with Matt, heard that episode, she asked me, which would be more difficult seeing a child put up this heroic fight that ultimately results in their passing over an extended period of time of months or the initial shock of a completely unexpected passing. And I couldn't answer that question. I can just tell you that to this day, intellectually, I know that Matt passed away almost two years ago, but emotionally, I still don't feel the finality of it because he lived 3,000 miles away and we'd see him a few times a year and we'd text and talk every day, but it's not like he was five years old in our house every day where we saw him for breakfast, saw him for lunch, saw him for dinner, would play music at night and have a day filled with contact because he was an adult. He was 32 years old. So we were empty nesters. So 
the way I feel about Matt's passing is sort of the way I feel about my parents passing. My father passed away September 29th, 2012. That was almost eight years ago. I just feel like I haven't seen my dad for a while. I still think about him every day. He still makes me laugh every day. So it's just a different sense that I know he's gone also intellectually, but emotionally, I still feel connection with him. The same thing with my mother who passed away two days after Matt did. So the shock of the suicide is something that I think you'll never forget, but you realize that it's not how somebody died that counts. It's how somebody lived. And Matt made the most of his time on this planet. And that is the tribute that he gave to us as those who were lucky enough to know and love him. And that is the memory of the good work that he did while he was on this planet that I feel is now my duty to continue through my time on this planet. Thank you for that answer. Um, I'm not sure I actually knew the answer to that one. Um, So as we've all started our journey, which we've already said, every journey is different. Men and women grieve differently. So even though a husband and wife have lost the same person in a child, the way they grieve is different. As a reference to suicide, we all know the struggle of our journey of grief is very difficult. There's nothing. In fact, I think it's the hardest thing I've ever attempted to do in my life. And I'll say right now, I'm not over Jordan. I'm over the loss of Jordan. We still have tough days and tough weeks even now. And it's been almost six years. Has has been six years. July 2nd was the sixth anniversary of his passing. Is there, in this struggle with loss by suicide, is there anything different in that grief journey that maybe I haven't had to to try and deal with or understand? Again, I think it depends on the individual's journey that they go through. I think there can be issues of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder that suicide survivors can go through because it's such a shock that hits so many people. Again, I've talked to many, many, many suicide survivors and they've been wonderful being very open about their experience. And the vast majority of people that have been willing to talk to me have mentioned that they never, ever thought this would happen. They never saw this on the radar screen. And they know that 
if they could have done something, they would have. They didn't because they couldn't. And that has been told to me so many times by different survivors, those exact words. And I think as a suicide survivor, again, everybody's going to be on their own journey and you have to take that journey on your own to protect yourself, but also to live your life as a tribute to your lost loved one. Because again, it's not how they died, it's how they lived. And so many of the suicide survivors I've talked to have found some peace and contentment understanding the importance of remembering how they lived. And I think that greatly helps them with their journey of grief, but also hopefully to avoid any issues they might have with PTSD or other issues that could be case-specific to suicide survivors, which would not be healthy for them to deal with without some help. I think that's an interesting comment that you made that um, they realized they couldn't have made a difference. And they realized, and I know that's probably a question because I know I've lived with that one myself with what we went through with Jordan. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's an important point. So as we mentioned before, this is a very deep and involved uh, subject, and there's a lot of different things to cover. And we're going to break it into a few different episodes over the next couple months. And um, I think what we're going to try and do is wrap up this first episode with one last topic. I've got here suicide, as far as suicide survivors are concerned, is that just the subject or the name of suicide often comes with Certainly in the past, it has always come with a stigma or a shame or resulted in isolation afterwards for the survivors. It's just one way that I think society used to to consider suicide or look at it, and the family had to live with that after. Do you agree with that? Yes. I think that the Stigma suicide is something that historically has been obviously a big, big, big mistake because suicide is nothing new. You go back, look at history, the Greeks, the Romans, taking hemlock. Uh, As you know, we went to Israel last year and we went to Masada, which was basically a mass suicide where the Jews of Masada decided to take their own lives as opposed to becoming slaves to the Roman oppressors. So suicide is nothing new. And I think you have to, again, realize that society changes. Again, looking at history, sometimes... You look at what man's inhumanity to man has consisted of with 
slavery and wars and oppression. And, you know, you look through Spanish Inquisition, the Crusades, the uh, Holocaust. It's just a lot of death and destruction. So hopefully as humans, we are progressing where a lot of those atrocities will be lessened in the future. But if you look at current events, there's still atrocities that happen throughout the world, still oppression and still examples of man, man's inhumanity to man. But I do believe optimistically that we are making progress. And with that, I think that is hopefully going to happen with suicide because I think people are realizing that, as I said before, it's not how you die, it's how you live. And I've said this many times to many suicide survivors who told me the exact same thing, that their loved ones didn't choose suicide. Suicide chose them. And it's a situation where I believe that Matt's suicide was due to a brain disease that is no different than other fatal brain diseases, such as there's something called a glioblastoma brain tumor that took the life of Senator John McCain took the life of Senator Ted Kennedy and the medical technology to date does not have an effective cure for a glioblastoma brain tumor. You get that diagnosis, you have a high propensity of death. And I think suicide is no different than a glioblastoma brain tumor because it's just another brain disease that medical technology does not have an effective treatment or an answer to cure. Interesting. I wanted to uh, to share with everybody, when I was born, I was actually named after my dad's father. Uh, I was, I don't know, I was like the fifth or sixth grandchild, but... I got to be named after him. It wasn't until I turned 21 or 22 that I found out from talking with one of my cousins that my grandfather, Stephen, who I was named after, had committed suicide. Uh, it was like late 40s, early 50s. And I didn't even know. And um, I, I remember feeling in shock when when they told me and they're like, Oh, you didn't know that. It's like, no, my dad never said a word. My nev, my mom never did. But I do remember we used to go to the cemetery all the time to put flowers on my grandfather and grandmother's grave. And we drive 20 miles into the town where the gravesite was. And I always remember my grandmother was over next to a lot of these other graves. Yet my grandfather's grave was not next to hers. It was across the drive in the cemetery, and it was actually off by itself by one of the maintenance buildings, and 
not far beyond it was a, a pile of trash where they threw out all the old flowers and trees and bushes. And I always ask, how come they never had the two graves together and mom and dad never said? But I found out afterwards that they're not together because suicide back then was actually considered a very bad sin and he wasn't allowed to be buried next to her and they actually put his grave on the other side of the drive in the cemetery because he died by suicide so i actually learned of that part way through my life i i didn't have any idea but um, it just shows that so many families can be affected by it Steve, that's very interesting because I will tell you that um, – tell you this one last story. I had a suicide survivor who told me about her father's passing, and I read his obituary, and it listed cause of death from a heart condition. And I asked her about that, and it was farther enough farther enough out where she actually made a joke about it. She goes, yes, my family wanted to list my father's death as a heart condition because we all know when you die by suicide, your heart will stop. And she sort of laughed because she knew that it was just – what the family wanted to do to make the obituary less painful or more socially acceptable, but it wasn't the truth because obviously you can say every cause of death is a heart event, cardiac event. Why? Because when your heart stops for long enough, we're all going to pass away. So I think what your story illustrates is that what I was trying to the point I was trying to make is that I've been amazed how people that I've dealt with in the suicide survivor community have been very uh, proactive talking about how their loved ones lived and how their loved ones died and as, I, as I've said many times today it's not how they died it's how they lived but it is important to talk about when somebody does die by suicide because you can see what is happening with these statistics. We went over the first part of the show. It is an epidemic that is getting worse. And this is not something we can sweep under the rug, not talk about, and just hope that it's going to get better because it won't. It's getting worse. And as a suicide survivor, the rest of my life is going to be dealt with trying to do whatever we can do for the good of society to prevent this from happening to others because we're losing the best and the brightest to death by suicide. And I know Matt would want me and my family to do everything humanly possible to avoid this epidemic from hitting other peoples and other families. And I think that is a societal change for the better that I see happening. So thank you for sharing your family's experience dealing with suicide 
and hopefully this will help other families in the future realizing this is something that I think we can and we should talk about openly to help defeat this epidemic. Marshall, I, I want to thank you for your insight, your knowledge about this topic, your stories, and um, everything that you're doing in in Matt's name going forward. I think we'd like to bring today's uh, episode to a close. We're, we're going to have to take several other episodes to try and get through this topic. It's a rather lengthy one. It's more involved. So we hope you uh, you enjoyed today's episode got a little better understanding of suicide in general and, and what we're all facing as a society today. We'd like to invite you to uh, check out our webpage at uh, www.hopethroughgrief.com, H-O-P-E-T-H-R-U-G-R-I-E-F.com. And also Hope Through Grief on our Facebook page. Uh, you'll find uh, many of our uh, sessions there and a link to to the podcast uh, that is h-o-p-e-t-h-r-u-g-r-i-e-f on facebook thank you for joining us today and and stay tuned for next week's episode thanks for joining us hope you have a great day thank you for joining us on hope through grief with your co-hosts marshall adler and steve smelsky we hope our episode today was helpful and informative since we are not medical or mental health professionals, we cannot and will not provide any medical, psychological, or mental health advice. Therefore, if you or anyone you know requires medical or mental health treatment, please contact a medical or mental health professional immediately.